welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, you're in for a real treat. I'm back live in a lecture called How to Keep Up with the New Information in Medicine. This is a lecture about everything you need to do on a weekly basis that'll keep you abreast of the latest medical findings and results. You won't want to miss this discussion. And of course, the slides have already been emailed to supporters on Patreon. Consider backing us on Patreon. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. Okay, so this all started with the case, got me interested in this. Um, it was a 60-year-old sister of a 65-year-old patient who I saw with multiple myeloma. The patient had multiple myeloma, but the sister's in the room. And sometimes, you know, as doctors, we end up giving a little informal advice for family members who happen to be there. So this time, it's the sister who's asking me a question. And this sister was worried because, after all, her sister developed multiple myeloma. Does she have a risk of multiple, of multiple myeloma? She's worried about multiple myeloma. So she asked me, doctor, should I increase the amount of exercise I do to protect myself against getting multiple myeloma? And I said, what a question. Boy, I thought I knew some things about myeloma, but I did not know off the top of my head if exercise in a sibling who's affected, whose sibling has multiple myeloma is protective against developing incident myeloma. That's the question. And then she said to me, well, didn't you read the new study? I said, oh boy. <laughs> hmm, didn't you read the new study, doctor? It's a tough question to answer. And like all doctors, we learn over the years the perfect way to answer the question. Well, well I'll, I'll come back to that. So I actually took some time and I, uh, actually later on, I pulled up this article she was talking about, and it's called Amount and Intensity of Leisure Time Physical Activity and Lower Cancer Risk. Amount and intensity of leisure time activity, lower cancer risk. So they're talking about the risk of incident cancer, of developing cancer. It appeared in the JCO, which is a very prestigious publication. And here's what they found. They looked at different types of exercise, which we'll talk about in a second, and they looked at the rate of many different cancers. And as you know, there are hundreds and hundreds of different cancers. In the paper, they present figures for many different cancers. For some of the cancers, they found an association. So here's what they found for multiple myeloma your rate of developing incident cancer, looking at a hazard ratio, falls the more metabolic equivalents you do per week. This is the hours of METs you do per week, 7.5, 15, 22.5, 30. Interestingly, it looks like there's a protective effect about to 15 hours, but if you start going more than that, you're even more active. If anything, there's no additional gain. That's what it looks like to me. And they have a statistically significant p-value, which means you can publish it. <laughs> so then I had to admit that, okay, now I'm familiar with what she's talking about, but I actually have no idea what a MET is. I don't know. So I, like many doctors, looked to Wikipedia. And I said, what exactly is a MET? And it turns out that it's grouped into light intensity, moderate intensity, and vigorous intensity activities. If I played tennis doubles three times a week, I get five for each time I did it. So I'd be right at 15, that sweet spot, protecting myself against multiple myeloma. Uh, I also noticed that um, you know, there's walking, there's sweeping and mopping floors. I, you know, that's, that's not what I want to be doing to get my points. Um, I noticed that you know, I, ride I ride my bike to commute every day. And so I thought, look, that's pretty good. But it's considered a vigorous intensity activity. It's six mets. But I bike every day. But I bike you know, five days a week, so I'm probably a little bit out here. That's not so good for me. 
Um, I noticed that they have scored sexual activity, but they've somehow ageistly picked a certain age. And, and I, didn't under, I didn't understand that. This is straight from Wikipedia. I was baffled as to why that was the case. Okay, so I dug even more into this paper because now I find a protective association. Um, I dug even more, and I find some things that concern me. And, uh, and, this, and this is what I found in the supplement of the paper, that it turns out there's a distinction between moderate and vigorous Mets. So the hazard ratio looks protective if you engage in a moderate intensity exercise. But for vigorous, look at that point estimate. It's like right at one. Vigorous looks like it doesn't do anything. So now suddenly I don't feel so good about biking every day, which is considered a vigorous intensity activity. So what do you think about this? This is quite a puzzle, right? Now I have all this information. Well, here's what I think. That's how I felt. I looked at this paper. I said, what a mess. What a mess. What are they telling? What kind of story are they trying to tell from this data? Um, so I guess I would summarize by saying I don't believe it at all. I, I just simply don't believe it. I think it's an implausible finding. Uh, it's an implausible finding that multiple myelomas, the risk of developing it is reduced with moderate intensity, but not vigorous intensity activities, up to 15 mets, but not better if you do additional mets. That's a very bizarre biology you'd have to postulate for all those things to be true. So I think it's quite implausible. Then there's the potential for multiple hypothesis testing. How many different ways can you slice and dice how people exercise? You can do it in METs, you can do it in hours a day, you can group it by activities. You have many, many different analytical ways you can ask that question. And how many different cancers can you look at? You can look at the risk of dying of breast cancer, the risk of incident breast cancer, of myeloma, of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Why not break that out into follicular lymphoma, CLL, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma? Break that out in terms of molecular... You know, there's so many different ways you can start to break this out. The potential for multiple hypothesis testing is huge. And of course, they're not finding a reduction in every cancer type, just some cancer types in the paper. Next, there's an issue of confounding. Uh, confounding, something you're not measuring that contributes both to the exposure and the outcome. So for instance, if somebody is ill, if they have maybe lupus or an autoimmune condition, they may be both less likely to exercise per week and more likely to develop incident cancer, something apart from both of these things that they're not really adjusting for. And finally, I was concerned with measurement error. Uh, people are self-reporting what they do per week, but you know, self-reports are notoriously unreliable. After all, I just told you I biked here five days a week, and who knows what I really... No, I do, but I skip a few days when it's icy. So, like all expert doctors, I answered the question. You know, with an answer like this, I could be in the democratic debates. So here's what I said, because I, I, I didn't answer the question at all. I said, do I... Are you, I was like, are, are you asking me if I believe staying active is part of a healthy life? Well, then I'd say, absolutely, if that's what you're asking me. And then I said, but are you asking me, would I specifically stay active to avoid multiple myeloma? I guess I would put it to you this way. I'd say I'd stay active as part of a, as part of a, a lifestyle to promote general and cardiovascular health. So that was my answer, to which she fired back, but have you read the paper, doctor? And I was like, that's a good follow-up. <laughs> I was like, we don't see that on CNN too often. They let them loose. They let them off the hook. But the answer, of course, is no, I hadn't read the paper. No, I didn't read it. I can't read every paper, every question you could possibly ask me. I can't read all these papers, and neither can you. We'd be lucky to read one paper a week the rest of our careers. I mean, I think even that is quite optimistic. So no, we can't read all the papers, particularly all the papers covered in New York Times and CNN and uh, Time Magazine, the, uh, the creme de la creme of the biomedical literature, talking about uh, how many grapefruits you should eat a week and whether or not you should uh, sprinkle blueberries on your muffin. And, you know, it's all this crazy stuff. We can't read all these articles. So no, I hadn't read the article. But boy, is it tough to admit that in the, in the patient room. So what are the objectives of this talk? I hope to give you some techniques on how to keep up with the literature. Uh, I think that the central thing you should be taught in medical school, which is not the way curriculum is designed currently, the central thing you need to be taught is how do you keep up and interrogate a literature in a landscape that is trying to bamboozle you. Uh, the, the mind and opinions of doctors is an incredibly lucrative commodity. There are lots of players in this space that want to get you to think a certain thing about certain novel, costly products. And your only defense against that is if you're very good at reading the literature critically. And to that end, I teach a class that some of you attended last year um, that tries to do that. It starts next week. Um, so the goal is to teach you how to keep up with the literature and how to read it critically. Um, what are some examples of studies that are commonly and just always misinterpreted 
And how can you be a better reader for medical information? You really can't read all the articles. There are 50 million scientific articles indexed in scientific indices, and they're coming out at a rate that no one can read. Um, this is uh, from National Science Foundation as a few years old. And already, as of 2013, we have 2 million-plus articles coming out per annum in biomedicine and science. Uh, it's tremendous output. Um, you, you can no longer even read all the articles in your field, even if your field is just multiple myeloma. You can't read all the myeloma articles. If you only want to read prospective clinical trials, you can't read them all. There's 50,000 per year. So no one can keep up with all of the literature. And to that end, the only solution, I think, is you have to be able to triage information. I want to come back to triage, but first I want to say that, you know, it would be one thing if we have all these articles and then you read uh, news stories about how wonderful they all are, how factual, how you know, non-misleading they are, but you read headlines that go like this. Um, replication, duplication, and waste in a quarter million systematic reviews and meta-analyses. That doesn't sound good. The mass production of redundant, misleading, and conflicted systematic reviews and meta-analyses. And challenges in irreproducible research. So we hear all the time our research is not reproducible. It's redundant. It's misleading. It's duplicative. It's replicative. I mean, it doesn't sound good. It's wasteful. So we have so much research. Um, and so much of it is, I think, just really a waste of human capital. So if you want to tune out the rest of this lecture and later try to, try to hear it, uh, I would say you could just read this article I wrote for Medscape called The 21st Century Physician Triaging the Tsunami of Medical Information. Pretty much what I'm going to say for the rest of the talk expands on the themes of this article. So I call it triage, and I really mean it's triage. And where does triage come from? It comes from, you know, classically an emergency department setting where you have more people coming in, maybe even wartime casualties, than you can literally handle uh, per unit of time. And so you have to make some decisions. There may be some people in whom uh, the process is just too far along and they cannot be saved despite best efforts, and they may be prioritized lower on a triage list. There may be people with um, rather mild ailments, and they may be prioritized lower. They can wait. And then there's people in whom you can make interventions that make a big difference, and that's what you prioritize. And that's triage. Well, we need to do the same thing with articles. My first tip, timing is everything. So this is a non-evidence-based tip, but this is what I think you should do. I think um, if you, it's just like anything else. If you say, I'm going to read articles next month when I go on vacation. I'm going to read them on the airplane. I'm going to read articles next Saturday. I'm going to take the afternoon, go to a coffee shop and read articles. If you say that, you're never going to read articles. You're never going to read articles if you, put it, if you set a future date when you're going to do it. You're only going to do it if you build it into your habit, in your weekly routine. And you can't do a lot of it because we're all super busy. So I would say your goal should just be to read one article a week, but to triage a lot more articles and to build it into your habit, into your day-to-day -day life. So here's how I think you can build it you got to pick a few journals that mean something to you. And so I'm just going to show you the journals that I happen to be interested in. But if you're going into OB-GYN or family medicine or, you know, you name it, there are different good journals in every field. Pick one or two journals in your field that mean something to you. And then you got to sniff out when they put new articles on the website. So, for instance, Monday. Monday at 1230 um, Central Standard Time, Jam Internal Medicine puts out some new articles on their website. So you'll find me there checking them out. Tuesday, JAMA, 12.30 p.m. Central Time. Wednesday, of course, you all know, 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, New England Journal articles drop. Okay, and of course, Thursday, uh, JAMA Oncology, JCO trickles articles out, but I like to look Monday afternoons. Uh, why, do I, why do I think this? I mean, I say this because, like, literally, if it's 2.15 on a Wednesday, and I'm rounding, and we're stuck at the elevator, I will pull out my phone and I will kind of look at the time, oh, 2.15, and I just go to the New England Journal website and look through the titles of the articles. I know when it's coming out. I know that's when I want to look at the titles. And why do I want to know, like, why do I want to look at it the moment the article drops, like, uh, like it's a new Star Wars movie? Why is that important? Because people are going to be talking about it around the water cooler. And I want to be either a part of the discussion now, but I don't have to always be a part of it. I just want to be able to watch the discussion at least when I started. Um, and you want to hear what people are thinking about an article, and they're going to be talking about it the evening it comes out on, on, on a website that I'm going to show you, and they're going to be talking about it the morning after. But they don't talk around the water cooler anymore. We talk on Twitter. And so that's what I would recommend for you to actually keep up with the articles is to have an account. I won't say you should, you know, I can't give you recommendations on what to do with your account, but I will say, the minimum use is you just follow a bunch of people who are thought leaders in your field or you respect, 
and you see what they have to say. And you can do that for years and just kind of keep an eye on things. Use it as a sort of a, a way to consume media. Because if an article comes out at uh, 2.01 p.m. Central Time on Wednesdays on heart failure, uh, you're going to find Venk Morthy from University of Michigan commenting on it. You're going to find Eric Topol from San Diego commenting on it. And they're going to give you their two cents. They're going to read the article and maybe somebody will push back with them and say, you know, I disagree with you, Dr. Topol. And you can see them discuss the issue. So you're going to be able to watch a very high-level discussion take place if you follow the right people and you look at the right time. And it goes a lot further if you've had a chance to at least skim the abstract or skim the title or read a little of the article. So that's why timing is so important, I think. I think timing is key because you want to witness the discussion and maybe someday be a part of the discussion. All right, what does it mean to triage articles? Well, we know what triage means in a medical sense, but in an article sense, I think this is how I would have you approach the articles. You skim the titles. You're not even reading the article. You just look through the titles and you ask, does this have anything to do with my practice or my interest? Or no, you know, is this uh, a drug that, I, I'm a cancer doctor, is this drugs that I use or is this uh, some new nephrology thing for people with on dialysis that's less of my interest? Um, is it a randomized study or is it observational? Uh, if it's randomized, is it a multi-center study or is it single center? You know, we've had some notoriously misleading studies that look to see if um, behavioral or operational interventions work in a single center. And some of them work wonderfully, like tight, glycemic control in the ICU. But if you try to replicate that and scale it in a multi-center trial, of course it fails. It's one of the reversals that you should have maybe read about in that reading. Um, I look to see if the sample size is large. Is it a randomized trial with over 100 participants? Or is it small? Is it like, sorry, you're like in the worst position. Is it like 50 people in each arm? Um, I look to see the endpoint of the study. Is it a clinical endpoint or a surrogate endpoint? Is it, and what is a clinical endpoint? It's something that intrinsically matters to people. In and of itself, it's important. And a surrogate endpoint is something that's a stand-in, a biomarker, like serum cholesterol or sugar level or uh, the size of a tumor on a CAT scan. That's a surrogate. But what's a clinical endpoint is how long you live or how good you feel. Okay, then if an art, you know, and I, and I want to say, these are not hard and fast rules. I'm, ne I'm not never going to read these articles, but I'm just going to prioritize these articles on the left. I'm more likely to read a randomized study that pertains to my practice that's multi-center, that uses overall survival as an endpoint with a large sample size. I'm just more likely to read that because it's more likely to be relevant to what I have to do. And then when I read the article, I never, I don't read articles anymore. I don't actually sit there and start introduction. Multiple myeloma is the most common cancer of plasma cells. Well, okay, yeah. That's how everyone starts all these cancer articles. Their, theirs is the most common cancer of the particular unique cell and maybe the 38th most common cancer overall. But they don't want to say that. They don't say we're the most common plasma cell cancer. So that's how they start. Uh, but I don't read that part. I mean, that's, you know, I'm going to read that over and over again. It's just wasting my time. I think of a few questions, and I just shoot in the manuscript and answer my questions, like a scavenger hunt. One, what, what did you do? What was the intervention? I'll give you an example. There's a recent study I'm going to talk about later uh, that looks at a new drug in pancreas cancer. And I want to be able to say in my own words, in one sentence, what they did. What was the intervention? And so I would shoot in the article, usually the methods and results, and read to try to figure out what they did. And then I would say, OK, here's what they did. They took people with pancreatic cancer um, who could not be cured with surgery, who were getting chemotherapy. And after four months of chemotherapy, um, they stopped the chemotherapy, uh, and they randomized them to a novel drug, olaparib, or a sugar pill after at least four months of therapy. So they had to get four months, but then they could be randomized to novel drug or sugar pill. Um, and they only did it in people whose germline had a BRCA mutation, so in their, in their somatic cells. So I try to articulate that in my own words, be very clear that I can say what did they do and to whom. So I just have to skim the methods and results, and maybe there's one sentence that tells me that. Then I ask myself, well, is the control arm what I would have done? You know, it's a randomized study, and you're telling me that after four months, you only ask for four months, you can enroll somebody at four months and a little bit of change on this study, new drug versus sugar pill. Is that what I would have done? I think, and I happen to know a lot of this area because that's, I'm a cancer doctor, so I'd say that's not quite exactly what I would have done. I, if they're doing four months of therapy and they're doing well, I would push them to six months, and then I would drop one of the two chemotherapy drugs and give the other drug by itself indefinitely, because this is a very tough disease. So I actually think right off the bat, I'd say, it's oh, not exactly what I would have done. What was the effect size? I looked to see the results. You know, what, what, what was the difference between the two groups? Is it a big difference? Is it a clinically meaningful difference? Or is it merely statistically significant? And you put enough people 
you put 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 people in a randomized study, you will find statistically significant differences that people may not care about because we're talking about a half percentage point in all-cause mortality or something even smaller, a third of a percentage point. Is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? Did they, mention did they measure survival, how long people live? Or did they measure progression-free survival, a radiographic surrogate, which I'll talk to you about? I always ask myself, what happened after the trial ended? Did people get appropriate care like they would in this country? Or was the trial run in multi-center studies in some countries that may not have standard of care up to the US standard? And is it potentially that this was the only therapy they got, which would not be like my clinic? And then I ask, are there any games with patient selection? So let me give you some examples. I think when you think of it like a scavenger hunt, you approach the paper very differently. You're not reading the whole paper. With time, you get better at the scavenger hunt. You know where things are located. And it's much more active. Like you're actually, in, you're not falling asleep reading these papers. Uh, you're engaged. You're trying to get some information out of it. So you're like trying to do some work. So this is a popular drug, Entresto. Who here has already rotated on a cardiology service or CTICU or CT service? Okay, some people. Uh, and who here has ever seen this drug be given? Okay. All right, so this is an interesting drug, and it came out in an interesting study in 2014 uh, called Paradigm, which is a paradigm-changing study. Uh, and it looked at angiotensin neprilysin inhibitors versus enalapril. And I remember where I was when this study came out, because after all, it was 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, on a September 11th. Yes, I can already tell you, that's probably a Wednesday. It's 5 p.m., because that's probably when I looked at it. And I thought to myself, you know, like, why is this capturing my attention? I was like, I looked at it, I'm like, oh, it's heart failure. That's kind of a big deal. You know, I've just come out of residency a couple years before, and heart failure was what I had seen so much of. And we hadn't had a new drug in heart failure that improved mortality in a long time. And lo and behold, I just cut to the, cut to the, the results, and I see this. This is all-cause mortality. And this is enalapril, and this new drug, LCZ696. And it has uh, so many zeros in that p-value, my goodness. And, uh, but, but, you know, nevertheless, this is like an actual improvement in all-cause mortality from a new drug in heart failure, um, a huge market. Uh, a lot of people suffer from this, and we've just never seen this in decades. So this is instantly jumping up to the top of my pile. And also, as the article comes out at 5.01 Eastern Time, uh, CNN has a story about it. The New York Times has a story about it. You know, everyone's breaking the embargo at the same time. This is, this is the news of the week. And so I ask my questions, and I try to find the answers. And so I ask, well, what the heck was the intervention? So the intervention was Secubitril Valsartan 160 BID. I said, well, what the heck? I don't know what Secubitril is. It's a novel drug that inhibits neprilysin, which is something I don't even know what that is. But actually, I, I, I later learned that there was a prior neprilysin inhibitor that failed in clinical trials a few years earlier. But Valsartan I'm very familiar with. That's an angiotensin receptor blocker. And that's actually quite a stiff dose. I had patients in my clinic for years. There are not many people I get up to 160 BID. That's quite a stiff dose, I remember thinking. And then I thought, all right, so what did they do in this study? They must have taken people with heart failure and randomized them to this new drug plus Valsartan versus Valsartan. That must have been what they did. Very logical study. There's only one variable here. It's the new drug. Does it help or hurt? And then I started looking, and I was like, well, that's not what they did. They randomized him to enalapril 10 milligrams BID. I was like, okay, so I'm trying to be able to put it in a sentence what they did. So we took people with New York Heart 2 and 3 heart failure, and we randomized them to a new drug and a very high dose of an ARB against enalapril at 10 milligrams BID. And then I wanted to check, what, what, what dose is that? So I found out that Valsartan 160 BID, that is the maximum FDA-approved dose by drug package label. You cannot give any more per the FDA. Enalapril, it's the half maximal FDA dose. You can give 20 milligrams BID. And I thought, okay, that's strange. You can, you can take an ACE in the control arm to half the max, and you can't go any higher, but the ARB is being pushed to the max, and you're combining with a new drug. So this has also caught my interest. I've never seen things like this too often. So then I said, okay, that's what they did. They took 10,000 people with heart failure. They randomized them to new drug plus max dose Valsartan against enalapril. That must be what they did. I'm trying to articulate what they did. And then I looked in figure one of the paper, the consort diagram, and I found that's not what they did. What the heck? What's all this? It's all this discontinued study, discontinued study, run in, run in. What does this mean? And so I've, I've cleaned up the slide so you can read it better. Uh, but the top is off. Okay, so here's what they did. They took 10,000 people with New York heart 2, 3, heart failure predominantly, 
And they put him, and they, and they were all taking ACE inhibitors and ARBs at baseline because those are medications that prolong survival and heart failure, and we've been giving those for years. And they took all those patients, and they say, whatever you're on, you stop taking it. Stop it. And you take enalapril, 10 milligrams BID for 14 days. You take enalapril. And in those, 10, and in those 14 days, 1,000 people fall off the study. Okay? 1,000 people. So 10% of the study is lost. Some people died, but some people couldn't tolerate that dose. Then you take the novel drug and Valsartan for 28 days, twice as long. And it has a dose escalation period in the middle of this. And another 1,000 people fall off the race. And if you think about these drug running periods, it's kind of like thinking about a marathon. The 1,000 people that fall off in the first mile and the 1,000 people that fall off in the second mile, I mean, you would think that these are actually probably more frail than these people. These are slightly, you know, they're able to complete the first mile. So these are a little more hardy people. The fact that 20% of people are falling off this study before we've even gotten to the randomization part, I mean, I think it's already like ringing some bells in my mind. It's a little, that's a little odd, problematic. So then there's 8,000 people and we randomize them to Secubitril, Valsartan, or Enalapril. So now I can clearly articulate what they've done in this study. Okay, so here's what I've already concluded. One, um, let me go back to my questions and answer them for you. Okay, what was the intervention? The intervention was novel drug plus maximum dose ARB. Is the control arm what you would have done? I don't think so. I wasn't using enalapril a lot at the time because it's a twice-day dose drug. I was giving a lot of people single-day dosing lisinopril, and uh, I wouldn't have capped the dose at half the maximal FDA dose. What was the effect size? Effect size was big, actually. Clinical surrogate endpoint, all-cause mortality was improved. That's good. What happened after the trial ended? We'll come back to. Any games with patient selection? Yeah. There was some games with patient selection. They did a double drug run-in period where 20% of people uh, did not make it to randomization, and then they randomized. And when they did randomize, what did they randomize to? If you were on the experimental arm, you got, you got to continue what you were taking. So these people are randomized to just stay on what you're taking. What you took Monday, you stay on Tuesday. These people are randomized to switch back to something they hadn't taken in a month. So if there's, any, if there's four drugs for heart failure, A, B, C, and D, they all work equally well. But every time you switch, there's a problem. A few people have a heart failure exacerbation just because one medication's coming off board, another one's coming on board. If there's any problems with switching, who pays that penalty? In this trial, only the control arm pays the penalty. Treatment arm just to stay on what you're doing, smooth transition. Okay. Well, then I got, I, I started, this led to even more questions in my mind because I said, Boy, they capped that enalapril dose at half the max FDA dose, right? They capped it. Um, but when people, before people enrolled on this study, there's no limit in society. You know, people are free to take whatever they want. So there's got to be somebody in this study who has taken 30 milligrams before they started in the study, you know, 15 BID. And by enrolling the study, the only thing that's happening to them is they're being capped at 10 BID, right? There's got to be somebody who has taken a higher dose at baseline, and they're prohibited from taking a higher dose when they enter this study. There has to be, just by chance alone, you got 10,000 people, somebody had it happen to them. And for that person, that's not so good, because we had already had a lot of data saying that you try to push the dose of these drugs as high as they'll go. Some cardiologists will push it till the patient's a little bit lightheaded, because we know the higher dose pre prevents ventricular remodeling, has improved outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. So I ask, what percent take a higher dose at baseline? And I dig in the supplement, and I find, oh, they let it slip out. They gave me just enough information to figure it out, because they say, um, the use of angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors and ARBs at the screening visit. So among the 10,000 people who were screened for this study, what was the use of the baseline? And what was the mean use of the drugs in milligrams? And what was the standard deviation of the drug use in milligrams? Okay, so here's what I find. Of 10,000 people, 2,000 took the drug at baseline, about 20%. So did the majority of people take enalapril at baseline? No. I mean, 80% of people are taking something else, which kind of fits with what I had said, which was like, I wasn't going to be giving this. It wasn't part of my practice. Um, when you were taking it, the mean dose was 16.4 milligrams, but the standard deviation for the dose was 8.3 milligrams. And so you know, if somebody gives you a mean and a standard deviation, and you assume that a variable is normally distributed, you can actually calculate how many people are taking more than any dose you want. In fact, there's an online calculator that does it. So I just Googled normal distribution calculator, and this popped up. And here's all I have to do. I type in the median, 16.4. I type in the standard deviation, and I type in what I want the cutoff to be. I want to know who's taken more than 20. 
And it tells me, boom, it integrates it and says above 20, 33% of people would be taking above 20 if you assume a normal distribution of that variable. And I think it's probably fair to assume that, uh, uh, that, uh, that, a, that a medication that's dose escalated like this is normally distributed. Maybe there's some, maybe it's not perfectly normal, some variation to that. But uh, this is problematic. I mean, I'm doing this for enalapril because that's where I have the data. But this is probably true for every drug among all the people included in this study. This means that this study is not including people for whom 20 milligrams or more of enalapril will make them lightheaded and make them feel lousy and they can't take it. Because at baseline, probably one in three people who enroll in this study was already taking an ARB or ACE equivalent dose that's higher than the maximally prescribed dose in this trial. The only thing the trial is doing to one in three people is capping the amount of ACE or ARB they can take, which is probably crushing the control arm. Like, Put, but, but, like doing a disservice to the control arm, maybe even harming the control arm to show a benefit that may be spurious. Okay, so that is problematic. Then I said, well, uh, now this is a study that really got me interested, and, uh, and I did some real deep digging. So I asked Rosa Ahn, who some of you may know because she's a fourth-year medical student, I asked her to take a deep look into this study, and she did this. I said, uh, you know, uh, go, just, I was like, everyone's saying this trial is unprecedented. We've not seen anything like it, and I want to know, is that true? So I said, you know, can you pull up every drug approved in cardiology from 2005 to 2016? She did, 46 drug approvals. How many trials ported all those 46 drugs? 141. And then the first question she asked was, how many tested this combination? Drug A plus B versus C. Secubitril, Valsartan versus Enalapril. And she said, well, you know, a lot of drugs test drug versus placebo. That makes sense. Drug A versus drug B. That makes sense. Uh, sometimes they tested combination versus one drug versus another drug. That makes sense. Um, only two trials tested drug A plus B versus C. Only two trials out of 141. And then I said, well, what was the other trial? And it was, does anyone know? One was Paradigm, obviously, the one I showed you, because it led to drug approval only other cardiovascular drug in a decade that was approved, two different drugs tested against a third drug, was isosorbide uh, hydralazine versus enalapril, for, um, which is called Bidil, which was used for African Americans with heart failure. Um, but even that trial required a confirmatory study, and the FDA made them do a second study of that. So that's why uh, this is the only drug that's approved based on one trial that's A plus B versus C. And, you know, I mean, simple logic tells you you don't really know if A is adding anything when you add A plus B versus C, especially when B is cranked up to maximum volume and C is at half maximal dose. You don't know what A is adding. That's problematic. The next thing I asked her to look at was that run-in period. How many trials have this run-in period where you take the drug and people fall off the study before you're randomized? And it turned out about a third have a run-in period, a third don't have a run-in period, and a third, they don't even tell you if they had a run-in period, which has got to be very poor trial reporting. They don't even tell you. Um, but I asked her, how many had a double drug run-in period of unequal periods of time? And the answer was no other drug. So this is an unprecedented drug. Uh, there's nothing quite like it uh, because it has an unprecedentedly unusual trial design. Okay, so we ended up writing this paper that came out in CERC uh, Cardiovascular Outcomes uh, called, you know, for these drugs that are blockbuster drugs that are going to be, you know, potentially $10 billion a year drugs given to lots and lots of people, uh, you know, you, we need confirmatory studies. We need more than one trial for these kinds of drugs. And I guess I'd say this. Um, one of the authors of this study, he said, you don't need a confirmatory trial. We've randomized so many people. Our p-value has so many zeros in it. It's as if we ran four trials all at once. That's how powerful our trial is. And I think this... This, this author of this study, this PI, very respected person, he doesn't understand why you ask for two trials. You don't ask for two trials to get increased statistical purity. You're not asking for two trials to get a more stringent p-value. You're asking under two slightly different sets of circumstances. If I change the cake recipe just a little bit, do I still get a very delicious cake? You want to change things a little bit. So what could a second trial look like? You could take people who are ACE intolerant and randomize them to LCZ696 versus just Valsartan at max dose. So prove to me that Secubitril is adding something in a smaller population. Or you could do that in people who are on an ACE. Or you could do a three-arm study of lisinopril versus this. Or crank up the enalapril. You could do a, just something different to show me that it's the new drug that's really doing something. 
So confirmatory studies are not for statistical significance. They're to prove under a variety of, of, of circumstances something works. Um, all I know is under the unique sort of constellation of things that occurred when this trial happened, this drug beat enalapril. But I don't know if it would have worked if it didn't have a double drug, double drug run-in period where they exclude people, if they didn't cap the enalapril dose, if they went against Valsar. I don't know all those questions. So I don't really know for sure what the new drug adds. And that, to me, is not good enough for a drug that's going to be given to tens of thousands of people and cost us $10 billion plus. My conclusion. I read this paper with my questions. I say, not good. It's not a good conclusion. And then I got in an argument with the guy who wrote the paper. <laughs> because of Twitter. Ah, here's another trial that I, I despise because it's bad. It doesn't, it doesn't like actually help patients. It's like really irritates me. It helps the manufacturer, but it doesn't address anything that patients and doctors would really want to know. All right, so I was reading the New England Journal, and I see this trial, maintenance elaborate for germline pancreas cancer. And this is the one I told you about earlier. They take people with pancreas cancer. They made them get at least four months of therapy, and then they were allowed to be randomized to this new drug or sugar pill. And I already told you, I wouldn't give them at least four months of therapy. If they're doing well, I'd give them at least six months of therapy. And then I would never stop therapy. I'd give them 5-FU as a single agent indefinitely. So I would never let them be randomized to sugar pill. Not in my clinic, because this is a highly lethal malignancy, and these are drugs that have already proven survival benefit. Okay, well, anyway, let's go to this study. Before I tell you about this study, I have to tell you the endpoint that's improved in this study was not overall survival. It was progression-free survival. And you see this all the time progression-free survival. And probably, I don't know if you've ever had somebody show you what is progression-free survival. All right, so progression-free survival. That's a composite endpoint. What does a composite endpoint mean? Composite. Cardiology loves composite endpoints. They use something called MACE. People who took my class are not allowed to answer. Composite endpoints means one of several things could happen, and it all counts as the endpoint. So I could run a diabetes trial, and the composite primary endpoint is the time until you go blind, the time until you have renal failure, or the time until your A1C goes up half a percentage point. And that's a classic diabetes endpoint. Two things that are super important, and a third thing that is not nearly that important. So progression-free survival is a composite endpoint. It's a time to something happens endpoint where one of four things could, could check off that box. And here's what it is. One. You need to know that when you enter this study, we measure your pancreas cancer, and we pick a few lesions, and we measure it with calipers on a CT scan. And this is the initial tumor diameter, and we use something called RESIST. Um, one thing I should say here is measuring a tumor on a CAT scan, I like to say it's like measuring the width of a cloud between your fingers in the sky. <laughs> it's not like measuring your height. It has a fuzzy border. And sometimes I give lectures and I show actual CAT scan images and I ask the Hemonk fellows, I make one stand in the back and turn around, I make the other one measure it with his hands, and then I have the other one come and measure with his hands and the audience laughs because they didn't measure the same thing at all. It's totally off. And there's a number of studies that show there's like measurement error here. Okay, but we measure this. It's a time until one of four things happens. Number one, the person could die. That's not so good. That's a bad outcome. The patient passes away. Um, and the time until that happens, that's, that's coded as a PFS event. That's a survival part of the event. It tends not to be the most common event of a PFS endpoint, but it's one of the ones. Two, there's new lesions on the scan. All of the lesions I measured are the same, but we have new lesions pop up on the scan. Well, that's progression. That's defined as progression. You shouldn't be having new spots that didn't exist before. It doesn't sound so good to me. Um, your tumor could get bigger, but it has to get 120% bigger by the sum, by, it has to get 120% bigger before it's progression. 119% stable disease, 121% progressive disease. It's arbitrary cutoff that we've set up for progression, okay? But what if the drug made the tumor shrink first? And if it shrinks first, it has to get 20% bigger than the smallest it ever was. And if it shrinks more than 30%, it's called a response. And these cutoffs are, for those who are interested, you should read Malignant. How bad policy and bad evidence work against cancer. Coming April 20th. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you all the history of that. But, all right, so it's arbitrary. These arbitrary cutoffs. So it could be one of these four things. This could happen to you. 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 I mean, if you ask me, I think I put them in an order, which I think in an order of, uh, of from worst to least worst, right? 
uh, but any of these four things. So that's PFS. It's a composite primary endpoint. Does a patient feel good at 119% and feel crummy at 122%? No. Does a patient feel crummy at 25% tumor shrinkage and then suddenly feel better at 32% tumor shrinkage? No. So it is a surrogate. It doesn't measure how they feel, even though it's commonly misinterpreted even by oncologists who think it's a measure of what matters. It is something that's simply measurable, but not what matters. So back to this study. So they, this is the primary endpoint, progression-free survival. And look, if you get Olaparib, you do better in PFS on this Kaplan-Meier curve than if you take sugar pill after a minimum of four months of therapy. Uh, and I guess I would say that this difference between the curves, which I would call small or modest, uh, is big enough that I can fit a laser pointer between them. And that, as they say in oncology, is all it takes to give the plenary session at the national meeting. You can fit the laser pointer between the curves and you have a successful drug. Uh, so, but you know, people applaud that. But what they don't look at is the overall survival curve. Here's overall survival, your risk of dying. And they look the same to me. And the p-value is 0.68, as n almost as not significant as it gets. And I um, recently had gave this lecture and a drug rep from AstraZeneca uh, accosted me afterwards and started yelling at me. And it, it blew me away because I've given so many lectures, far more scathing, and not a single drug rep has ever uh, gotten angry with me for the simple reason that, you know, if you're a drug rep working for this company, what do you, you know, I mean, how much of your self-worth do you put in this drug? I mean, it's a job, right? It's just a job. I worked a lot of jobs over the years that, you know, you could insult the, the job, I, I don't care. Uh, so, but this person said that I was wrong. There's a numerical difference between these curves that is not statistically significant. I said, numerical difference? Where is the numerical difference between these two things that are touching and crisscross? Uh, are you crazy? It's totally crazy, numerical difference. There's no such thing as a numerical difference that's not statistically significant, especially here. This is called overlapping curves or a drug that doesn't improve survival at all. And, and, and I know they're going to say it's not mature, which is a longer discussion. All right. Um, so, what was the intervention? Well, we gave this new genome drug, you know, to people with germline mutation status that we tested after four months of therapy. Is the control arm what you would have done? I already said no, I probably would have pushed chemotherapy maximally. What was the effect size? The effect size was small. Uh, is it a clinical or surrogate endpoint? It was only a surrogate endpoint. What happened after the trial ended? I didn't have time to talk about that too much. Any games with patient selection? Well, they all had to have germline BRCA status. Uh, but what are the key failings here? The control arm is not reflective of what I would have done, and it didn't improve overall survival, and it doesn't improve quality of life, and it costs over $10,000 a month of therapy. So, you know, that's my verdict. So what do you think the U.S. Food and Drug Administration does when they hear all this? Oh, one more thing. I'm coming to that. I need to prep better because... My punchline is ruined. All right. There's one more thing I want to tell you about this study. This is a study, of course, that randomized people to Olaparib or sugar pill. And I told you that's not really exactly what I would have done. I'd probably give them a little more chemotherapy. I said that many times. But what I noticed something was very interesting in this study, that response rate. I showed you that picture of the sphere shrinking. And if it shrinks more than 30%, it's called a response, right? And in the Olaparib arm, 20% of people had a response. And in the sugar pill arm, 9.7% had a response, tumor shrinkage, that was more than 30%, 10%. One in 10 people had more than 30% of shrinkage on a sugar pill. And so I knew one thing that um, you know, I'd known for many years, which is many years ago, a very wise oncologist in Canada named Ian Tanock went through every trial that randomized people to sugar pill or a treatment. And he said, if you get a sugar pill on a trial, how many people have a response? And he had to think the number has got to be close to zero because sugar pills don't shrink cancer. Okay, I, I, no one should believe that they do. Um, uh, okay, they don't drink cancer. But what he finds is that there's measurement error, right? So there's gonna be some error rate. And if you look at many, many studies, he finds, I think the average was something between two to 3% of people on sugar pill arms had a response on these, uh, pooled across many trials. But I'm showing you a trial, it's not two to 3%, it's 10%. It's three times the median response on sugar pills. Why, why is this? trial have so many people on a sugar pill whose tumors are shrinking that much. I want to tell you, I believe it's real. Their tumors are shrinking. They're taking a sugar pill, their tumors are shrinking. And we all agree, there's no homeopathy here. The sugar pill is not shrinking the tumor. In fact, usually these days, people believe the sugar pill would feed the tumor. The tumor would explode and grow. That's what I hear. Don't eat any sugar. Don't even think about sugar. Okay, so why, why did one out of 10 people have 30% more tumor shrinkage? 
Yes. The chemo they got before is the only explanation I can think of. The only thing I can think of is you took people with pancreas cancer and you gave them less chemo than I would give them. And some of those people are doing so good from that chemo you're given, their tumors continue to shrink even while you give sugar pill, such that one in 10 of them shrinks 30% from when you started a sugar pill. It's still the momentum you had gotten from that chemo. Imagine if instead of giving them a sugar pill, you just continued the effective drug that was shrinking their tumor so marvelously. You would deepen the response even more. You might even improve their survival. And so the overall survival curves, if you had randomized them to Olaparib versus 5-FU, might have gone the other direction. Olaparib might have been deleterious for survival. So I saw this and I thought it was a big red flag. Okay, so polo trial. You halt a therapy that is normally not halted and you randomize people to a new costly toxic pill or placebo. You measure an endpoint that is not a measure of what matters and historically has never been accepted in pancreas cancer. You don't improve survival, you don't improve quality of life. So what does the FDA do? Now this was my joke. And of course they do what the market wants, which is in a, on the question of whether a lap room has a favorable risk benefit profile, the ODAC voted in favor, 7-5. That says, let's give it a try. No survival benefit, no quality of life benefit. One in 10 people have a response on sugar pill, probably from the chemotherapy they got before. Very, very fishy study. And the answer is, quote, heck yeah, says this person from University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. When you tell your patient, like, hey, listen, I have a drug for you. There is no proof this makes you live longer, live better, and it'll cost you $10,000 a month. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. That's terrible. What is going on in this profession? It really, I think... I think that's one of the things that bothers me the most is that, um, I mean, I, I don't even, I mean, it must be a form of brainwashing to look at something like this and conclude, not just like, okay, yeah, plus, you know, there's all these nuances to it. It's okay. It's at least it's a drug you could give, but heck yeah, that doesn't make sense. It's too much. Okay. So those were the objectives of this talk. I have some other stuff prepared, but these are the objectives. One, how do you keep up with the literature? And the answer is you have to build it in your routine. When you're looking, when I'm at the elevator, I'm looking on Twitter, I'm looking when these articles come out. I just have, I pick a few journals. I pick more than the average person. You pick one, two journals and you just keep up with it. Um, and just do it like as you're a resident because it's never gonna get easier. You're never gonna get less busy and you're never gonna be less tired. And if you don't build it as a matter of habit, you're just never gonna do it. And if you never do it, then you're never gonna be able to use your own mind to decide if what people are telling you is right. And I think when I hear what I think the key opinion leaders say, I. I disagree strongly, often, and that concerns me that they are really shaping the narrative in the minds of so many people. So I think the 21st century physician, you cannot trust anyone. Um, many people have personal financial ties to the drug makers, and they may have ulterior reasons why they want to say, heck yeah, uh, and you need to be your own uh, impartial uh, um, interpreter of the evidence. And in fact, if I were to change medical curriculum, I would delete uh, the whole uh, step one study and replace it with how you can actually read these papers better, uh, which is much more useful to you than being able to tell me what an Ashoff body is or how many isoforms of RNA polymerase there are, which is useless. I have never needed to know that. Um, what are examples of studies that are commonly misinterpreted? And the answer are studies where they're playing games with the control arm. They're playing games with how they're including people in the study. They're playing very subtle games. Uh, industry studies do a lovely job of randomization, of blinding, of concealment. Those are often not the problem. Um, but the endpoints they're pursuing are endpoints that don't matter. The control arms are not the best available standard of care. Uh, these are kind of nuanced problems, and, and I think those are much more common. How do, can you be a better reader of medical information? It's like riding a bicycle. It's practice. Uh, you read a bunch, and then you go on Twitter and see what smart people say. Did you find all those faults in the study? Do you disagree with some of what they say? Um, you know, you have, to, you have to practice it. It's a skill like totally distinct from other skills. Um, and, and nothing that, you know, n I think n no aspect of it is captured in how you've been assessed to date. It's not adequately captured in clerkship evals, in the tests you take. It's a dis totally distinct skill. And, and just like you can do it well, I think people can also do it poorly when somebody says, oh, this study is bad. Uh, I'll give you a good example. There's a study called Orbita and it is a randomized trial of sham stenting versus stenting, and the end point is how much can people exercise. And its sample size is, uh, I believe, close to 200, just under 200. And people say, well, that's too small a sample size. It's underpowered. But what they don't know is that's incorrect. It's actually powered to detect a difference in exercise time that's smaller than what we think the minimal important difference is. So it is, in fact, overpowered, even though it's 100 people. 
So I, my point there is that you know, it's easy to get it wrong. So it, it takes a little bit of, of skill to say the right criticism. OK, I'm happy to do one of two things. One, we could do questions or talk about whatever you want to talk about. Option two is, if you're interested, I can tell you why the news will always, always be wrong when you read articles on dark chocolate, vitamin D, blueberries, um, uh, tea, coffee, alcohol use. They're just always going to be. You're always going to be frustrated and wrong if you read those articles. Uh, OK, but maybe we'll take some questions, then we can have time to do that. Who would rather hear about the news? OK. Oh, OK, quite, oh, you want to hear about the news? All right, so you know, I think that if you follow the, the New York Times well column, You'll be, you won't know what to do, and it'll feel like this is how they're writing it. One day they spin the wheel and say, today's news story is coffee. Can cause spin the wheel, depression, in spin the wheel, twins. We got the story, let's go with it. <laughs> and, and we have to also agree, there are certain topics that are very seductive. Vitamin D, vitamin E, uh, uh, berries. Berries are so in vogue. And you know what gets, uh, what gets just, just crapped on is pitted fruit. You want to do a research study of a, a peach or a plum? Get the hell out of here. Get the hell out of here with your, your peach study. We'll publish that journal. Just put that in the trash. It needs to be a berry. A berry is how you get in the New York Times. Uh, you need to do dark chocolate. You want to do milk chocolate? Just give up. Give up your career. Milk chocolate, no. Dark chocolate, yes. Red wine, yes. Now you're thinking how, how to get in the New, New England Journal. I'm joke, but I do believe there are people who think this. Okay. So in fact, I recently noticed a few years ago that this is actual news story. Vitamin E increases all-cause mortality. Um, increase all-cause mortality. I went to my cupboard and I threw out those gel caps. <laughs> oh God, but what have I done? A week later, vitamin E more mortality study is challenged. A new study questions whether or not it's associated with increased risk. And so I went to Costco and I bought the world's biggest jar of vitamin E. Okay, how, why do these studies always flip-flop? And I think here's why. Like, how do, we, how do we do these analyses? And this is kind of a simplified version of what a lot of people do. Well, one thing you need to know is the data set is broadly available. There's a data set called NHANES where we have asked people to tell me how many tomatoes they ate and how much red wine they drank and how much dark chocolate they ate. And I know 10 years later if they had breast cancer or if they lived or died or if they have lung cancer or whatever. I know all these outcomes and I know all these inputs of what they did. And we construct models. So if you give me this data set in a very short period of time, I can create a regression model. And in a regression model, you try to model some outcome you care about. Let's just say all-cause mortality. And then you pick a bunch of inputs that you, you think matter. So in this case, the first thing you want to do is put the input of the thing you're studying, vitamin E exposure. But you've got to adjust for some other things. What if you know, 20-year-olds are not using as much vitamin E as maybe 70-year-olds? So that might give you a false inference. So we have to adjust for age. Maybe we adjust for sex or race. And this is what I adjust for in Portland, Oregon. I have access to the data set, and I have Stata, and I can do this in 15 minutes. And my friend in Toronto, he does the same thing. He's thinking about, he's thinking about vitamin E. But he's in Toronto, and he adjusts for income, because they care about socioeconomic status in that country, not this one. <laughs> my friend in North Carolina, she steps out of the hospital every day, and she just sees so many people are smoking. And so she adjusts for smoking. Of course, she just sees it. She's just reminded of it. We're not reminded of it that much in, in Portland. Maybe vaping, but not smoking. She's seeing smoking, so much smoking. And my friend at Harvard, he knows how to publish, and so he adds in BMI and hypertension, diabetes, cholesterol, alcohol, consumption, education, families, heart disease. He's adding it all in the model. He is smart. He knows how to publish. Okay, so what's going on here? Many investigators have access to the data. Let's agree. Many people have the data set. Many people are probing the questions. We're not probing the questions equally. At any moment in time, more people are asking about berries than pitted fruit. More, I was joking earlier, but that's probably true. More people are asking about red wine than asking about gin and tonic. More people are asking about uh, tea and coffee than asking about broccoli and cruciferous vegetables. I mean, just because those are things that more people are interested in or believe is plausible. More people are probing those questions all the time. Each of these people is adjusting for some set of covariates, other variables, that they believe makes sense to them. We all have a story and a reason why we're adjusting for our things. So what if you simulate the entire research community, thousands of people asking the question in tandem, all adjusting for random things, all finding random things? And 
Recently, they did this. So this was John Yonides, Chirag Patel, Belinda Buford, in a marvelous paper that uh, uh, was published in Journal of Clinical Epidemiology, but should have been published in like Nature, because it's like such an important study. Um, and it's called Vibration of the Effects. And here's what they did. They basically said, we're going to take these NHANES things, we're going to pick one thing at a time, like vitamin D and vitamin E, and we're going to adjust for 13 things. But we're not going to adjust for all 13. We're going to adjust for every possible combination of 13, from each one individually to all 13 put together to every combination of 6 and 5 and 4, right? They're adjusting for all the permutations of this, which is 2 to the power of 13 or 8,000 models. And they run a computer overnight and they generate these galaxies of associations. And what is this? Every dot on this plot is a study that you would read in the New York Times. Every dot is a study. Every dot is a study, and it's a heat map. So the whiter it is, the hotter it is. And on one axis, they plot the hazard ratio. You know, a hazard ratio of one means no association and less than one benefit over one harm. And on the other axis, they plot negative log 10 p-value. But you don't need to know that. That's technical. Okay, so they're plotting the hazard ratio, and they're simulating this galaxy. And there's some heat to this map. This map is hot. There's a lot of analytic plans that give an analysis of a certain hazard ratio. What do you think the most common hazard ratio is between, let's say, vitamin D and mortality if you run many, many different plans? One, no association. But you can find covariates that give you positive and negative associations. And so what you have to think about is the research community. If my postdoc or I run this analysis and I get one, what will I do with it? I don't think I'll even tell anybody. I won't even tell another person because I will say, oh, shucks, no relationship. Let's, look, let's do something different because if I could, I could spend the next you know, month writing this up and I publish in the, in the journal of not even your mom will read, uh, you know, but, um, but it's not worth my time. My postdoc will find this result. She won't even tell me. She won't even bring it to my attention. She'll think it's dismiss it. Um, let's say I find a result that's over here. Now I'm intrigued. Let's do some more studies. And now I submit it to a journal, and the JNCI accepts it. And then they, they accept it, and then the New York Times decides to cover it. We press release it. All of the incentives for every step of the way incentivize not reporting the huge middle part of the iceberg and only talking about like the tip of the iceberg that's sticking out of the water. And so the New York Times is always going to flip-flop, because one week they'll cover this story, and the next week they'll cover this story. Because once this story comes out, the next most provocative idea is this idea. And that's what people are going to be incentivized to chase. And then it'll be this idea, then it'll be this idea. And in fact, they have looked at this for, they threw a dart at cookbook ingredients, randomly pick ingredients, look to see what's linked to cancer, and they find beef is linked both positively and negatively, coffee both ways, wine both ways, uh, uh, potato both ways, um, even sugar both ways. Um, and, and I think, as one of the authors has said, that some nutritional epi epidemiology it's less about truth and more about an opinion poll of what people believe is plausible. That the published estimates in the literature exclude the middle, the null, boring middle, and are only telling you estimates that people think are plausible. And right now, we live at a time where these things are thought of poorly, and these things are thought of favorably. But in the future, you know, it's things have shifted in my lifetime. Eggs has been one, you know? Uh, and, and as the societal attitude shifts, the studies will shift too. And so I think that's part of their, their thinking here. And so the answer is, it'll always flip-flop because one, uh, retrospective observational studies are plagued by confounding. That's a challenge. Two, they're plagued by time zero problems, which is a lecture in and of itself that you should read about if you're interested. And three, they're plagued by multiplicity and multiple hypothesis testing and selective reporting. And randomized trials have that less because you can only run five randomized trials. You can't run 500 randomized trials and only report the five that make sense to you. Uh, and, and so that's why prospective randomization has one additional advantage beyond the problems of minimizing confounding. So if you enjoyed this, I'd say check out these books and uh, check out the podcast. We talk about all these things. And there's still spots available starting Monday as our class that runs for two weeks. And uh, people who attended can say uh, it, was, it was quite fun. Um, and if you don't, can't take the class, the last day of the class is an is a, a Oxford-style debate on something that is always quite entertaining. And it'll be open to like the medical community, so you're welcome to join the audience. So thanks for having me. You've been listening to season two of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. 
Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening. <laughs>